Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thanks for joining. Arnie Bernstein is back with me. He has been a guest twice on this show, both times in the first year of the podcast, uh, back when I did my slightly menacing, uh, mostly silly accent. Episode 9 is about his book, Swastika Nation, which is all about the rise of Nazism in 1930s America. And on episode 26, he returned to talk about his book, Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing, a very powerful, true account of a horrific crime. It came out in 2009. It was about a act of terror against a school in the small town of Bath, Michigan, on May 18, 1927. And since his book's release, he has kept in contact with survivors, and he has just recently released a brand new edition of the book. Thank you for returning. Uh, how, how are things? Things are good. Things are good. Thanks for having me back, Eric. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah. So we, we certainly don't need to retell the story in its entirety. You've already done that. And as I stated, people can go and listen to our prior episode together. Sure. But a uh, summary, I think, would be helpful. Sure. It just you know, We'll do the short version here. What happened on May 18th, 1927, there was an explosion at the uh, consolidated school in Bath, Michigan, which is a small town about, oh, eight to 10 miles outside of Lansing. But in 1927, it was much further given that there was no interstate. And the north, as I say, the north wing of the school blew up. Um, nobody knew what it was. There was some thought that it could have been uh, the, the generator. for the, They had no electricity in town, and they thought it might have been the generator had blown or something like that. At the same time, 
you know, simultaneously there was an explosion and a fire at uh, the home of Andrew Kehoe, who was a school trustee. People, you know, were trying to put out the fire at his house, um, the, the old-fashioned bucket brigade, and there was explosions coming out of his house. Then they saw this. There was this huge cloud of smoke. They saw Kehoe driving through this cloud of smoke. And he said to him, boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. They didn't know what he meant. And he drove off. Uh, people tried to get furniture and things out of his house. And then they saw that there was dynamite in the dresser drawers and things like that. They got out literally, you know, <laughs> within moments before it blew. Then the school is a site of just epic heartbreak, um, epic destruction. The, nobody knows what's going on. Um, they're literally pulling debris with their hands. They didn't have backhoes or things like that. Uh, and I mean, it, it, it's just as horrific a scene as you can possibly imagine. There, you know, there's a triage going on in front of the school. There's a temporary morgue that's going on in front of the school. Uh, the high school kids are helping the little kids. Um, there's, I mean, you know, I don't want to get too graphic here, but there were, you know, body parts uh, uh, on the ground. Um, there was a, a little girl who was hanging upside down from a window and clearly dead um, and was there for hours because they couldn't get to her. It, 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 it's just as horrific a scene as you could possibly imagine. Uh, Kehoe pulls up his truck to Emery Hike, who was the superintendent of the school. Now, Hike and Kehoe had a history. They really did not get along. Uh, Kehoe was the treasurer, and he always was trying to make sure that the school wasn't spending too much money. He felt that as a taxpayer, the school shouldn't be wasting money, which is, you know, normal. I mean, there's nothing, I've been on school board, or not, I've been on school board meetings. I worked in education for a long time and there's always fights going back and forth between people. So he pulls up his truck to hike and hike says, we need your truck. We need to get ladders, ropes, things like that. Keo says, okay, I'll take you with me. And Hike had this, uh, I heard this from eyewitnesses, he had this horrible look on his face and he said, you know something about this, don't you? Keo grabs it, takes his gun, fires it into the cab of his truck, into a cache of dynamite, blows the truck up. He and Hiker are killed instantly. And he had packed the truck with old rusty nails and screws and other, you know, small pieces of metal, turned into shrapnel, um, killed a couple more people and... Uh, it, it, it's just, and then, then they knew what was going on. Now they could not find Kehoe's wife, um, Nellie, who had been, a, she'd been quite ill for a long time, some kind of lung disease. They think it might've been tuberculosis or severe asthma. She couldn't be found. Uh, she was found the next day, burned beyond recognition in a cart on uh, the Kehoe property, which had burned to the ground. And on the edge of Kehoe's farm was a sign that said criminals are made not born. That's the short version. It's, it's, it's obviously more complex and people should go back and listen to the other episode where we get really get into it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a story that continues to have such relevance. Unfortunately, yeah, this stuff doesn't go away. Um, I, oh, this is actually the 95th year since the bombing. And when I was, when it, Right, it, I opened the book with the right before the 80th year uh, since the bombing, and about six weeks before that was the Virginia Tech shooting. 
And there were a lot of similarities in between Virginia Tech, the way it unfolded. And some of the, you know, the survivors, you know, or elderly at this point, you know, they, they felt it really hard. Now, before I was close to finishing the book and I, I was teaching that morning and I had a student come in. Um, she had on uh, dark sunglasses and a red uh, Northern Illinois University uh, shirt. And there had been a shooting the day before at uh, Northern Illinois University, a student, a student, he was a former student or something, walked into a uh, lecture hall and started firing and he killed five people and himself. Um, and so I said, this, this student of mine, I said, simpacato with, with your you know comrades. And she said, I lost two friends yesterday. And we went out in the hallway and she just like collapsed in my arms and just sobbing. And I would, it's, it's, it was a profound moment because at that moment I saw, I was, I was really damned close to finishing the book at that point. And suddenly I saw exactly what the face looked like of Bath. It was just, it, it, it uh, you know, I, I can't even describe it. Um, and since then, of course, we've had far too many of these things, you know, Parkland, but there was one after Parkland in a school in Texas, the name escapes me, but it was actually on a May 18th. So it was on a, the anniversary day of the Bath School bombing. So it, it, it doesn't stop. So it's been 13 years since your book was published, and you were fortunate to talk directly to some of the survivors. Yeah. Those survivors are mostly gone now. Right. How does the story continue to live on in the memory of the town? It's it's always part of them. It's part of who they are. It's it's you know, I like to say it's their DNA. You, you you don't have something. A whole generation of their kids were wiped out, and this is one of those quintessential Midwestern towns where everybody you know is related to somebody, and you know people have been there for generations. And you go into the the cemeteries and you see generations of people. You know the same families are there. It's you know, it, it's part of who they are. The uh, the local elementary school there is. They they tore down the they they rebuilt the school, and it was eventually torn down in, in 1975, which was quite controversial. Um, they've since built a park, a memorial park there, to what happened that day. And the original cupola from the school is at the center of the park. Um, and there's a museum in the uh, uh, the middle school across the street, um, which has a lot of artifacts of the day. Um, it's, it's, it's quite a special place. Wow. That, that, that's great. Yeah. Can you give us some, some examples of some of the new information that has, uh, trickled in since your book's first publication? Yeah. When it, when it first came out, um, I heard from other survivors. I was, which was a surprise. I and mean, most of these people were in their eighties and nineties at the time when the book came out. And I heard from, Woman, uh, Myrna Gates, uh, when she was there, she was Myrna Gates Coulter, and she lived in Canada. And the woman who was helping take care of her had found the book, and um, she said she wanted to speak to me. Uh, so I interviewed her. I, at this point, we weren't thinking about doing an update, but it was, this must have been, the book came out in 2009, so this must have been about 2010, 2011. And so I interviewed her, for the record, and then I heard from a guy named Ralph Witchell whose sister Elizabeth had been killed in the explosion as well. Um, he was now out in Nebraska, and he wanted to go on the record too. So I got these new, these, these fresh new interviews, 
and it really deepened the story. I also, um, there, there's a guy named Matt Martin who is working on a film about this. He actually was starting his film about the same time I was starting my book. So we've been kind of sharing information back and forth and there will be an announcement on the film later this year. I do believe, um, I'm one of the talking heads in it, full disclosure, but he and I were sharing information and sharing interviews and things like that. And I, you know, some oral histories and archives, that weren't available to me when I first started the book. So there was a, it really deepened the story, um, particularly with speaking with uh, Myrna and with Ralph. The way you've managed to stay connected to the community after so long is really neat. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. You know, my my cousin said to me, it's it's like the 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 Henrietta Lacks book. She said you became part of the story. And I guess in a way I have, you know, it's, um, you know, I go to Bath almost every year. They have a, uh, what they call the 50th uh, anniversary luncheon where they honor the, the 50th anniversary graduating class. And it's always held at the Saturday closest to the anniversary of the bombing. So, you know, that's an important, obviously, um, you know, and a remembrance of those kids. Um, believe it or not, there is still one person, a survivor um, Irene Dunham, who just turned 114 and is, uh, is going strong, do I might add. She's now one of the oldest people in the world. They had to go, like, go through um, some kind of rigmarole to, to you know, document that. But she is one of the oldest people in the world now. And I think she is the oldest living person in Michigan. She She's a delight, too. It's uh, I, you know, last time I saw her, I said, so, so what's the secret to a long life? And she said, hard work. And I said to her, darn, I was hoping you were going to say whiskey. And she just thought that was the funniest thing she had ever heard. She, real, real <laughs> sweet lady. <laughs> let's, let's talk about um, Myrna and um, Ralph. Sure. Um, let me, let me start with Myrna because um, she was the first one I interviewed. Uh, she, she told me a lot of stories that, that expanded some of the things I had already known, she gave a different eyewitness account of the explosion of Kehoe's car. Uh, she, you know, gave me, you know, she deepened the stories of what was going on on the ground outside there. Um, she had hurt her legs and she was able to get over to someone's house and, you know, the houses were becoming, you know, triage and hospitals, you know, on the, on the spot. And a woman said, you can, you can, sit up in the window, um, just relax, calm down. And she did. And she was looking out the window and wondering how, you know, her legs were hurting so bad. She didn't know how she was going to get home. And she's looking out the window and she saw this truck pull up and then the enormous explosion. And she said, she just took off, just ran down the stairs, ran and ran and ran and ran. And eventually collapsed. She didn't realize, you know, I mean, she, as bad as her legs hurt, they didn't hurt that bad. Um, you know, it was just, you know, sheer adrenaline kicked in at that moment. It, you know, it, it was horrific when she, her brother, Claire, uh, was, he was a couple of years older than her. She, they were both, he was a teenager and she was, she was, uh, maybe eighth grade freshman year. And she, it, it was the last day of school. So she, the, the, Superintendent Hyde called. He, you know, the the house. He said, "Could she come in? We, you know, she's always so helpful around here." And so she went in, and she went to the office, and he said, "Could you go down and get some mail for me?" You know, at the, you know, he was in his office to get the mail for me, where, you know, wherever they got it. And 
So she went down there and she got the mail and she said, she, so there, she was reaching for the door to open the door and the, the metal pole between the two doors that separates the doors. She said there was a glint of light on it. And she, her first thought was, well, there must be the sunshine. And it was the bomb going off at that point. And she instinctively just grabbed that thing and it stopped her from falling down. Uh, she ra- later ran into her brother, Claire. And he said, well, sis, I, I guess we know what we're going to look like when we get old. And she says, what do you mean? They he said, we're white as can be. They were covered in dust and their hair and their skin was just white. Now, Claire had been there that morning. He was helping put away, you know, things for the, you know, the school years, putting them in the basement. Now, Keo had secreted all this dynamite in the basement. Uh, when the police were, you know, they, they found that there was more dynamite. They needed somebody to go down there and help them. Um, navigate the basement. And because Claire knew it, he went in there. They, they gave him like a real quick lesson in how to use uh, snips to cut wire that was leading to dynamite. And he did it. They, they shown, they, they went down with their, their, you know, their torches, their electric, you know, flashlights and they would shine it when they would see it, Claire would snip it. And he was really something of a hero of the day in helping diffuse what possibly could have been a second explosion. Wow. It's remarkable stuff. Yeah, it it really is. Now, Ralph, you know, Ralph Witchell's story is, is it's heartbreaking. Um, He and his sister Elizabeth died. Um, She was, I think eight or nine years old. I can't recall. And the family, uh, the father, apparently had some money. They were able to go down to Florida every year and they would rent their house in Lansing. And they would go down to Florida for the winter, and then they'd come back up. Well, when they came back home, their they, the, their house was still in the agreement to be rented. So they they went and stayed with a family that lived outside of Bath, and they just you know there were like two weeks left to the school year, so they sent the kids to Bath School. And his sister Elizabeth was killed. Um, she was killed instantly. Um, they had been there for maybe two weeks. Now. Um, Ralph was, he, he was, uh, he actually deepened one of the stories because he had been, there, there was a story of a teacher who had been reading, reading a book to the kids and they said, oh, read one more, read one more, read one more. And so she did. And then the school blew. Well, he added something to that story and it really is something. It was a story about an elf who wanted a golden apple out of a tree. And she was, she was reading this and the elf was, re- you know, she got to the part where the elf is reaching for his apple and he gets his fingers around the apple. That's when it went off. That's when the bomb went off. Just oh as my gosh. The, in the, the story of the elf was, uh, was grabbing that apple. I mean, isn't that something? And they real he realized later, if we had not asked for that second story, the wall where they would have been normally sitting collapsed, they would have all been killed. Yeah. He got, he was able to get out of there and he just, he just took off and he, he said, he felt like, he said, I felt like God on high was speaking to me and said, get out of there. And he got out of there and he kept thinking, if I could get a pony, if I could get a pony, I could get out of here. And he ended up walking back to the farm where his parents were living and that night, I mean, he couldn't, you know, he, he was, couldn't sleep. 
And, you know, I mean, obviously it was shock and thing, you know, just the, the horrendousness of it all. And his sister, of course, being killed. And the, his mother called the doctor. And the doctor said, well, do you have any whiskey? Yeah. Keep in mind, this is 1927. Prohibition is still going on. And she goes, well, yeah, we have, we have a little bottle. Um, should I give him some? He said, give, her, give him two. It's the best thing for him. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's such that it's funny. You know, it, it, it's one of the few amusing moments, he, he, you know, given, given, you know, the times. You know, so, so it, hearing these stories really deepened things. Really, it, it gave... You know, I mean, I had a lot in the book, but it gave more it, it to to what I was trying to do with this book. Um, it, I, you know, my goal always was to tell it as fully as possible and to honor the victims. And by hearing more stories, I was able to do that. Now, uh, on the morning of Sandy Hook, um, you know, I, I opened up my computer, going through it, and I saw the the news. And after that, oh my God not again, you know, reaction. I said, I think I'm going to be busy. It was just one of those things. And I was, and I was getting calls from, you know, radio stations around the country, even from Australia. Um, you know, they wanted me to, what does Sandy Hook mean? You know, you wrote about children who were killed too. Um, it was one of the hardest weeks of my life. Um, not nearly as hard, of course, as other people, but and the afternoon it happened, I called one of my friends in Bath, because um, we've gotten to be quite close over the years. And, you know, I said, it's bad. It's really bad. Um, and I had a feeling they were going to get calls too. And I think they did. I think they got a few. But I had a friend who was a minister in Connecticut. And, you know, I emailed her and I said, do you know what's going on? And she said, yeah, I live four miles from the site. I was in the, I'm ministering a couple of the families. I was in the firehouse when they told him that they, the kids weren't coming home. And this was one of those moments. I just, I mean, I was just stunned. And my first thought was the Einstein phrase, you know, God doesn't roll dice with the universe. Um, suddenly I was this fulcrum between two of the worst school killings in the history of the country. And I called my friends at Bath. I said, look, you guys know better than anyone what they're going through. Maybe you could send a letter. And they thought this is a great idea. So, you know, the, the museum committee, there's a board that oversees the, the Beth School Museum. They wrote a, a letter. It was a beautiful letter that I sent to my friend. It was published in the Newtown paper. And my friend wrote a letter back thanking them. Now, every spring, every May, there's a luncheon at the Beth School. Uh, it's, it's to honor the, it, it, they call it the, the 50th. Uh, year re uh, reunion, something like that. They honor the 50-year graduating class at the luncheon. And the people get together. And I mean, people, as I say, live there for generations. So you have, you know, a lot of people there who have been graduates. But that year, Sandy Hook weighed heavy on everyone's minds. And they read the two letters at, the, at this luncheon. And there was not a dry eye in the house. It was just, it was just, you know, and it was this terrible realization that it just doesn't stop. The, the hard part of all this was, you know, people wanted a why. Why did this happen? And the horrible fact is there is no why. Um, Kehoe was just wired 
that way. He didn't have the switch in his brain that said, you don't do this, you know, the same way that, you know, other killers just don't have that switch in their brain that says, this is not what you do. Yeah. How did people cope with the trauma in the 1920s when there was little to no help? They, well, it's a farming community and, you know, the cows are still going to need to be milked and the chickens are still going to be need to be taken care of. And, you know, your crops still need to be, they just buckled down and did it. They, you know, there weren't, there wasn't counseling back then. And they just sort of did what they had to do. And some people left town and they just couldn't live with it any longer. They coped as best they could. You know, they, 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 there was no counseling. There was nothing like that. And they just coped. Um, and a lot of it, they just, you know, they, they've, they, it's something they've lived with. And it, it's very much part of the town's fiber and who the people of Bath are is, you know, remembering and honoring these 38 kids and the four adults who were killed by a madman. Now, it's interesting. One of the survivors, um, Josephine, she was Josephine Cushman then. Um, she was Josephine Cushman Vale. She, uh, she and I got to be good pals. Um, it, 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 one of the most special friendships of my life. Um, and she and I got to be really close. Uh, she lived to be 100, and uh, she died maybe six weeks after her 100th birthday. But when I was interviewing her, she was telling, I mean, some of the most graphic material in the book is from her. And her brother was killed, and she described what her brother's body looked like, which was just, I mean, his chin was blown off, and just terrible, terrible things. And she was in her 90s when she was telling me this, and I thought, you know, I didn't want to upset her. And I said, writing a book, yeah, but it's not worth it, you know, to you know upset a woman who's quite elderly. And I said, you don't have to tell me this. And she stopped, and she said, no, I'm not going to be here much longer. I want people to know what happened. And her voice was firm and solid when she said that. So I, I, I did my best to honor the, the victims and the survivors. You know, can I mention the Hazel Weatherby, Vicki DeSoto? Because um, I, I think that's really important. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, now, th- there's a real connection between Sandy Hook and Bath, and that's with two teachers. Um, now, we know the, the story of Vicki DeSoto, uh, the kindergarten teacher, who literally stood in front of her kids when uh, this guy was coming through, I'm not going to say his name, but when he was coming through with his gun and and blowing people away, she stood between her kids and and the gunman just, you know, protecting them. It was her teacher instincts. I protect my kids. Well, she had a counterpart in Bath, a woman named Hazel Weatherby. And Hazel was, she was just 20. Vicky DeSoto, I think, was maybe 25, 26, somewhere there. She was young. And Hazel Weatherby was just 20. It was her first job. She had been hired that uh, fall, the fall of 1926. And she was in, she taught maybe second, third grade, and she was immensely popular. In fact, um, Myrna, told, Myrna Gates told me that uh, she, a lot of people regarded her as like a big sister. You know, the high school kids thought of her as a big sister. And she and Myrna both had the same kind of coat. And they, there was one brush, you know, to keep the coat clean. And Hazel said to her, oh, I'm so glad you, you and I have the same coat. I can, we can keep it clean together. She was just that kind of person. But when they found her in the rubble, she was holding on to two kids. Um, 
And what they think happens when the ceiling collapsed, she just automatically just took them in her arms to protect them. Um, the children were dead, but she hung on to them. And like Vicki DeSoto, she did that natural teacher thing, protected her students. And then when the rescuers came, she handed the children over and then she gave into death herself. Um, so those two are really linked. Um, and somebody sent me a note that Hazel read, wrote, and I want to read it. So here it oh, is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish I'd had this you know, a few weeks ago. Or, I mean, six months ago, because it's, I mean, this is one of those stories that just keeps ending. Um, now, there was a note that I've seen that she wrote. I don't know who was to. It was, maybe it was in a yearbook or something like that. Um, it's dated Bath, Michigan, April 13th, 1927. It says, Dear friend, be not simply good. Be good for something, Miss Weatherby. And then five weeks later was the bombing. So I mean, it, it's 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 quite a legacy that that Hazel Weatherby has left us. Wow! Yes, it, it's been a tough time these last couple of years uh, for teachers. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult job in, in the best of circumstances. Oh yeah, I mean, I teach myself. It's 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 you know, I teach college, and it's tough. But I mean, grade school. It's it's you know, my mom was a grade school teacher too, and it's 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 a hard job, but. You know, you don't expect to give your life for it, and you know that both. That's why I think both Vicky DeSoto and Hazel Weatherby, you know, they're 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 sisters in arms in kind of a way. They gave their last full measure, paraphrase Lincoln. They gave their last full measure of devotion to their students um, in the face of horror. Well, I appreciate you coming back, uh, Arnie, and and talking about your updated edition. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. It, it, it's an important story. I, I, you know, as I said, this is the ninety fifth year. Um, we're coming up on a hundred um, since it's happened, but it's still a fresh story that needs to be remembered. It's so sad, uh, you know, that that you have to talk about this every so often. Yeah, uh, sad that we still have these these school tragedies more frequently than ever. Yeah, and there's never. You, you just can't, you know, I mean, you can't stop a psychopath. And I mean, we think psychopath, we think, you know, you know, Leatherface or, you know, Freddy or something like that. But I mean, it, it's a real condition that um, there was a man named Robert Hare, who was a, a psychiatrist out of Canada who worked with, uh, with, I mean, the worst of the worst um, in Canadian prisons. And he came up with something called the Hare Psychopathic Checklist. Um, and Andrew Kehoe, you know, fit the model, um, as did a lot of these other school killers. If people want to look it up, it's, it's readily available. Um, it, it just doesn't go away. And if you want to hurt a community, you know, what, uh, a better way, but what more horrific way than to go after their children. And that's what Kehoe did. And that's what a lot of these other people did. And, I I can't wrap my mind around why around it, which is probably a good thing. But the the important thing, and I think the big lesson that we get from Bath, is the resiliency of memory, and the need and the importance of honoring the memory of those whose lives were just ripped away before they even had a chance to begin. 
Um, what we saw in Bath um, is similar to the, the kinds of things we've seen, you know, after you know nine eleven or Oklahoma City or you know other other you know people came together to they couldn't understand what was happening, but they came together to provide solace to one another and continue to provide solace to one another. Goodness, yeah. Well, well, thank you for coming on again. Well, th- th- thanks for having me, Eric. I, I, I appreciate it. You, you have one of the best podcasts there is, as far as I'm concerned. You, you read the books, and it's, it's really, it, it, you, you do a great job. Oh, I appreciate that. Again, I've been speaking to Arnie Bernstein about the latest edition of his book, Bath Massacre. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.